good to be here with you. We're going to look at Exodus 10, but we're going to start out in Revelation chapter 9. I didn't have a great joke this, this morning, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. Uh, I didn't laugh much. Three brothers had all left home. One made a lot of money, so he bought his aging mother a nice home. She couldn't see very well, but he made it really, really nice. Light colors, and she could see a little better with it. But the other son bought her a nice car and a chauffeur to drive her because she couldn't see very well. The third son didn't have a lot of money. He bought her a, a parrot. He thought, well, my preacher owned this parrot. It probably can quote some scripture. So I'll get this parrot and that way mom can hear some of the scripture. And so he bought a parrot. A few months later, they all came home and the mother was just thanking him how much she loved her house. She said to the one son how much she loved her car to the next, and she said to the third one, and that Cornish hen was delicious. <laughs> and you laugh, so it wasn't that bad, I guess. Today we're looking at locust, um, and we'll look at Revelation chapter 9 to begin with. I was, uh, of course, a lot of reading about locusts, you know. There's nine different words in your Bible uh, referring to locusts, including the word grasshopper that all refer to this critter. They're referred to in Scripture, the Assyrian army was referred to as locust-like because there were so many uh, soldiers. And we see locusts throughout Scripture. We know in Joel chapter 1, we see four stages of locusts. And uh, you can study that out. I was reading that in 1915, there was a swarm of locusts that had come through the Middle East and they laid their eggs. And then after the locusts left, uh, some other uh, grubs and worms came along and, and wiped out the crops. Amos chapter 7 is all about locusts. And of course, it's the eighth plague in the Bible. We know that in the last days, there'll be lots of pestilence, living critters, microscopic, many of them, and viruses as well, and diseases, many diseases. And so we know that Revelation talks about locusts coming. Um, and in Revelation chapter 9, it's, it's uh, one of the trumpet judgments. There are seven seal judgments in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then seven, seven trumpet judgments, and the last three are called three woes. And this is the first of those three woes. And some people believe the church is going to be here in the mid-trib until the mid-trib. I don't believe that, but, but just think of these 14 judgments you'll have to go through if you're left behind. I'm glad I know Jesus. Uh, but if, if, if the church isn't raptured to the mid-trib, we'll see these things. But I believe we're saved. I don't believe we're children of wrath. I believe that we're taken up before this. But thank God for salvation that we don't have to experience this. And here we know in Revelation 9, these judgments are upon the people in that day, the children of Israel. And uh, 144,000 will be saved. But people who their fate is sealed will be judged by these creatures. And in Exodus, we find the Egyptians who uh, have rejected God and not recognized God and who he is are afflicted. And the children of Israel are spared many of these judgments. Next week, we'll look at darkness. But rather than go through the same song and dance routine we've been going through, we're going to talk about spiritual darkness next week. So it'll be certainly different than the other eight, we're gonna talk about spiritual darkness more than we are literal darkness, the three days of darkness in Egypt. And we'll see darkness again in Revelation. And darkness, of course, is a great metaphor, isn't it? For evil, 
Men love darkness rather than light. And who is the light? The Lord. Talk about that next week. So let's read Revelation chapter 9. And you stand with me if you are able. <clears throat> we have a couple of verses that'll be on the screen momentarily about Joel and Amos. I think I already gave you those references. But here it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. This is an angel. And to him was given the key to the, of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Think of that. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. They were gonna eat, weren't going to eat the crops and all the leaves off the trees, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they, they should be tormented five months. And their torment was that of the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall not, and death shall flee from them. You want to commit suicide, it won't happen. You shoot yourself in the heart, God will heal your heart. He's going to make them live through this. Amazing. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared into battle. And upon their heads were as it were crowns of like gold, and their faces were as faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and they had teeth as it were teeth of the lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as a sound of chariots, and many horses run into battle. John is envisioning this 2,000 years down the road. He sees these critters. He doesn't know really what they are, but he's given a description. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Think of this, five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath the name Apollon. And this is, means destruction, by the way. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. God bless us. Thank you, God, for your word. Lord, it's kind of frightening to, to look at the tribulation period. It's, it's kind of overwhelming to look at all you did to Egypt to get their attention. And yet we know, God, you're in control of our lives and you protect us from so many things. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ delivering us from the wrath to come. Lord, we just ask you to bless today as we look at Exodus chapter 10. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Thank you for standing for such a long text. That makes up for the days I forget to have you stand. Um, but uh, thank you for that. That's a lot to read. But in Exodus chapter 10, we're looking at this eighth plague. And we find several things here, a testimony to future Israelis. We've, we've, we've known the scripture has said this is going to be a, a powerful thing in reaching Egypt, Egyptians to let them know God is the true God. We'll hear also, we'll find a testimony for the future Israeli generations and then a terror to Egypt. And then, of course, we have a temporary change in Pharaoh, which is not sincere. In verse one, we pick up and Yahweh says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart and his servants' hearts. And by now, of course, the servants are getting a little weary and we'll find them speaking up and saying to Pharaoh, let them go. This is getting old. This is the eighth 
time some plague has come and afflicted them. And of course, God is telling Moses here in verse 1 that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. And this has to reassure Moses a little bit that God's in control. He says, look, his heart's still going to be hard, but warn him about this next judgment. He's still going to harden his heart. And again, of course, the wonders of God will defeat all these Egyptian gods, all their little gods that weren't real, just demons or whatever, the God of the crops and the God of the sky. And all these gods are going to be humiliated, as always. And the Pharaoh will be embarrassed because he can't control anything. You know, every one of us knows someone who's a control freak. Maybe you're a control freak. Well, Pharaoh was a control freak. He had to have control of everything. And sometimes you work with someone who's got to control everything, very annoying. If you're married to a guy who's very controlling or married to a gal who's very controlling, it's very annoying. And nobody likes to be under that kind of control. And Pharaoh was that way. And God's just continually humiliating Pharaoh and saying, you're not in control. You, you have no control. And, and it's interesting. And then verse 2, there's another purpose. And here he says that thou mayest tell thy sons. He's talking to Moses and Aaron. This can be passed down from generation to generation. You know, the Jews are great about passing down tradition. It's called oral tradition. And Jews can tell you about their past because they've been taught this from their fathers and their grandfathers. I wish I knew a little more about my, my past ancestors. I know about one grandfather when I was a kid. I'd go to his house and watch him release the homing pigeons. They'd fly across Lake Michigan. And I, I wouldn't sit there all that time. They'd get a message and come back. And sometimes while I was there, a bird would fly in with a little message to his leg. And my great-grandfather would open it up and read it to us and give us candy corn. Now, that was the big thing. I didn't care about the pigeons, but it was pretty cool. And I wish I knew more, but I don't. But Jews just pass that generation down, down again and again and again. So here now we have Moses and Aaron, and they go to Aaron, uh, go to excuse me, Pharaoh in verse three, and they say, how long are you going to resist God? Why do you keep, how, how long is this going to go on? And they warn him in verse four, if you don't refuse, if, excuse me, if you don't submit, we're gonna, God's going to send locusts tomorrow and they'll cover the land. Now, of course, as I said, they were used to locusts in that part of the world. They had quite a few plagues. And uh, as I already mentioned, in the early 1900s, a massive plague. And so they'd had them before. But what the hell didn't destroy here in verse 5, the locusts are going to destroy. Eat all the rest of the crops up. And so they're going to have a Guinness Book of Record type of plague here because it says never had there been one like that before in this region in verse 6 or 7. And so they're going to have an overwhelming, you know, amount of locust. And then we find here in verse 7, the servants now are questioning Pharaoh. Why don't you let these people go? They've kind of gotten weary of all this. Let the men go that they can serve the Lord their God. And, of course, Pharaoh is not going to do that. In verse 8, and Moses and Aaron were brought again before Pharaoh. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but. I want to know who's going. But. Never enter a bunny contest with God. You'll always lose. You know, God called Jonah, but Jonah fled to Tarshish. God on a ship going down to Joppa. But the Lord sent out a great wind. And goes back and forth. And but the Lord sent a worm to eat the gourd. 
And the Lord sent a wind. And, and you know, when you are in conflict with God, you're always going to lose. Now, that's a play on words. But Pharaoh just was so hard-hearted. The first time he said, you know, stay in the land. And, and then he offers him a compromise. Stay near the land. Do you know the devil always offers compromises? He says, well, if you just compromise a little bit, you know, I'll grant you this or that. And boy, we sometimes want to accept his compromises. Let me tell you something. When God says something, stand on it. Don't budge. Don't move. That old Southern gospel song, my foot's on the rock and my mind's made up, you know, talks about I'm not going to be moved. And that's the way we are with God. If we're steady with the Lord, he'll bless that. So he says, stay in the land. And he says, stay partly in the land. And he goes on and on, offering compromise. Later he'll say, you can go, but leave the livestock behind. And of course, in verse 9, I love the way Moses and Aaron speak up. They said, we will all go. You know, I love that children are a heritage to the Lord. And uh, Psalm 127, I, I thought that was on the screen, but children are a heritage of the Lord. And, and to the Jew, their children were everything. Thank you. They were everything. And so they wouldn't want to leave and go worship without, worship without bringing their children along. You know, it's so important for you to teach your children the importance of worship. Do you know God demands we worship him? You know, you come on Sunday morning, it's, it's not just to fill a pew. It's to worship the Lord. When Joy was playing, I, I love that, the old rugged cross, she was playing that. And I was up here thinking about that song and, and, and what happened on Calvary. And I was singing. I may have been the only one singing, but I'm sometimes like that. No one can hear me anyway, and it's a good thing. But I was singing that and just worshiping the Lord myself. But I think about all Jesus Christ did on that old rugged cross. And just thank God for Jesus. And we come here to this house, and it's not just to, to, to just sit and fill a pew and see our friends. It's to worship him. We should all sing when we know the song, even if we don't know it, try and sing. We should all pay attention to Scripture. We should all be involved in the church service. And God wanted to be worshipped, and Pharaoh was not letting it happen. And God wasn't happy. And he says, we and our children are going to go along. It's interesting because I was reading this week about Egyptians and how their women accompanied them during all their religious festivals. The women were right by their side. And Jews wanted it that way as well. It's something special about a family being together to worship. And they worship the wrong gods. But we, it's great when we can get together and worship. I'm so excited because uh, I got family coming in this next two weeks. Jeremy and Sarah coming in from South Dakota for their conference and for their retreat, and, and they'll be staying at our house. And Zach and Alicia will be coming from, for their spring break next week, so they'll be here like this coming Saturday. And uh, they'll have their four kids, and so we'll have seven grandkids, two kids, two daughter-in-laws, all in our house. I love it. I'll, get, I'll be worn out. I mean, but I love every minute of it. That's, I'm so excited about it. But there's nothing more special than being with my family and talking about the Lord. And hearing all the different things about their churches and the Lord. There's something about a family worshiping together and being one in Christ. And so here Moses and Aaron said, no, our families, we're going to all go and we're going to feast. And this wasn't just a uh, fifth Sunday night fellowship. This was a time to worship God. Their feasts were all about the Lord. 
And so they're going to they're gonna go, and he says, we're going to go. And Pharaoh's sarcastic in verse 10 and, and says, I don't trust you. You're up to no good. And you say, preacher, you must be paraphrasing, I am. But Moses and Aaron are now driven out of the palace. It's getting worse. You know, now he says, get out. Next week, we'll, we'll find out. And I'm not going to talk about the, the literal three days of darkness much next week. So this is about all you're going to get. But next week, what does he do? He says, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. It is progressively worse as he hardens, or hardens his heart and resists God. Goshen's not mentioned, so we have to think Israel's probably spared from this plague. But here now in verses 12 and 13, God sends an east wind and locusts come in and they cover the entire area except for probably the Jews. Again, a record setting uh, a plague because here it says even afterwards there wouldn't be a plague as big as this. And the whole area is just darkened, it says in verse 15. If you can fly over an area where they have a plague of locusts and you look from a helicopter, you'll look down and the whole area will be, whole area will be black. They just cover everything. They eat everything. And you've all experienced uh, things that eat uh, trees. And I remember years ago, we had these caterpillars up in our tree up there. We had a birch tree and they ate every leaf off it. My dad had to go out there and kill them, but it was too late. In just a few days, we were gone. They wiped the tree out. You understand that. We have critters like that. Well, the whole country's covered with these. I mean, locusts are everywhere. And so it's, it's just a massive, massive uh, 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 amount of locusts. I was reading, again, there was uh, one, one writer says there's locusts 500 miles wide that come in. 500 miles wide and eat everything in, its, in their pathway. I mean, these are powerful critters. And that's the way it's going to be. And it's going to be that way in the tribulation period as well, except these are going to sting in the tribulation period. Thank God that we don't have to be there for that. But here, this plague of locusts. And I think about the east wind. Quite often you read in Scripture about God controlling the wind. You remember in Jonah, he hurled a windstorm down. We, we think about Moses being in a shipwreck. God sent a wind. He's in control of the wind. The disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. And what manner of man is this who can control the elements, the wind and the, and the rain and the waves? Only God can do. He's the one who created. Only God can control the weather and the elements. And again, God's in control right here. And then we have this change in Pharaoh's heart. I find it interesting how, he, how it's like a broken record. He says in verse 16, I've sinned against Yahweh Elohim. Oh, I've sinned and forgive my sin and then go to the Lord and pray to get rid of these locusts. How many times have we seen that? I mean, he's just typical of people who are in trouble and come crying to God, want to get out of their temporary situation. And now you understand, this doesn't all happen in an hour's time. You've got several days that have gone on here. And a lot of times we like to look at Pharaoh, and, and I do as well, and say, you know, it's so obvious he's not sincere. But, you know, God can see the lack of sincerity in so many people who make decisions for God. People go forward during a service and say, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to change. Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. And they need help right then. And as soon as their problem's solved, they're out of church again. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop praying. So we do the same thing in church today. 
So you ask, and, and I love Psalm 105. It says, he spake and the locust came. God just speaks. I love that about God. He just spoke the world into existence. He just speaks and it happens. And the wind came and drove the locusts in. And then the locusts were driven out. Again, Moses intercedes in verse 18. He goes back to God and says, could you please stop the locust, get rid of the locust. I think it's amazing about Moses, you know, how he was patient here. I might have said to Pharaoh, you're an idiot, man. You do this all the time. You're always asking for help. And then when we get you help, you go right back to your heathen ways. Do you act like that sometimes when your neighbor asks for you to pray for them? Many times over my years of ministry, people have known me being a pastor have come and said, would you pray for us? Our family needs help. Would you, would you pray? We have this problem and I always, of course, invite them to church. And I always ask, do you go to church anywhere? Quite often people will say, you know, I, I, need, I need some help. And I say, well, we have groceries at, at our church. If you come Sunday morning, we'll, we'll load you down with groceries. They seldom come. But they want help. And they just don't want to commit. And, and I still have to pray for people because they ask me to pray for them. Even though sometimes I pray, Lord, I know this couple wants help right now, but I know they're not going to pray and get saved and read their Bible. They just need some help now. And I sometimes don't know how to pray for them, but I, I sometimes run out of patience with people. Sometimes church people we can be impatient with. They'll say, will you pray for me? And you know they don't make the effort in their life to help with the problem, but they want you to pray for them. Faith without works is dead. So many times we pray and we ask God and we don't act upon anything by faith. We just want help to get out of our problem. Listen, God understands what we're doing. He knows our hearts, sometimes even family members. Sometimes coworkers come to you, hey, I need prayer. Uh, we're having this surgery this week and you want to say, look, I know you don't go to church. I know you normally don't believe in God. You take his name in vain and you're just a jerk. But we can't do that. What do we do? What did Moses do? They asked us to pray for him. We pray for him. It's, it's our job. It's our calling. Let me say this. You know what kind of a Christian you are by your prayer life. Number one, whether or not you even have one. Number two, if when you pray, you lift God up and praise him at the start of your prayer and confess your sin. But more important than that, you pray for other people before you pray for yourself. That tells you where you are in your Christian walk. If it's all me, myself, and I, your prayer life is wrong. Pray for others before you pray for yourself. Others are so important to God that we are compassionate towards other people. And when you spend your whole prayer time asking for God to bless you and take care of this for you and all that, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you are an intercessor like Moses for other people. Pray for other people. Don't be impatient with them. Well, God always answers. He had an east wind bring the locusts in. Now a west wind comes in and drives them out. And verse 19, another miracle, not one locust remained. You think of millions, perhaps billions of locusts covering all of Egypt, wiping their entire crop out, everything the hail didn't destroy, the locusts have wiped out, and God sends a wind in there, and that one locust remains. 
Only our God can do that. Only our God is all powerful. And they end up landing on the Red Sea and boy, I know the fish had a smorgasbord there or whatever of locusts to eat. And God got rid of them. And in verse 20 of our text, it says this. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. The budding contest is still going and Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. I've got several things. I, I was listening to Charles Stanley yesterday and I like what he does. He says there's people, now write this down. Write this down. Write these three points or these five points down and then the camera shows them writing them down. Take notes. Your Bible is getting you, uh, giving you on paper right on that Bible. Mark things. And I want you to write several things down today. These things I want you to write down. First of all, God knows what he's doing. Are you aware of the fact that God knows what he's doing? You look around your world and wow. God knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Write that down. But write this down also. God's in control. So many Christians don't get that. We fret, we fret because of evildoers. And the Bible said, don't fret because of evildoers. There, there's always been evil in our world. Do you think there was evil in Sodom? Was there evil when Noah built the ark? Was there evil on the day Jesus came personally to, to reach the Jewish world? And eventually the Gentile world, was there evil? Was there evil in Rome? Read about all their leaders. Evil, evil, evil. Evil's nothing new in the world. It's been here forever since the fall. There will always be evil. God is in control. And finally, God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you. In all of this, there's a purpose for his children and for you personally. He knows what's going on in your life. He's not dumb. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's happening. He knows about your health problems, your marriage problems. He, he knows about your problems at work, your problems with your plumbing. He knows it all because he's God. He's fully aware of it. And yet he's in control of it. He's in control of America. Our leaders are just simply puppets on a string to accomplish his overall purpose. And sometimes I think it's so bad right now. How is this accomplishing your purpose? But it is. I don't understand it. Maybe he's coming tomorrow. Maybe he's coming today. Praise the Lord. I'm ready. If you don't know him today, you're not ready. He's got a purpose. And finally, I want you to think of this. He has a purpose for you. And I've already said that. But his purpose for you is an eternal purpose. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We are here as eternal beings. When he saved me, John 10, 10 says, he gave me at that time eternal life and I would never perish. John 10, 28, I believe. He has an eternal purpose for my life. And, and my life being an eternal life, this is just a small segment of it. I'm just a pilgrim just passing through. Like Abraham, who had to travel all across the Middle East from, from the area up where the Assyrians were up in, in up above Iraq and Iran and had to travel down to the Holy Land. Life to him was one big long journey. 
That's what it is for us. We're just passing through. You say, but you know, the, I remember when I was an athlete, uh, I went to a conference one time and, and the guy just kept saying, you know, sports is just a means to an end. It's just part of something in your life that will develop you and maybe reach someone there's a purpose for. I was all thinking about dunking a basketball, hitting a home run. It was, I never thought beyond that. Came to Bible college, I said, now we're going out, passing out tracts today. Passing out tracts. We'd go hours passing out gospel literature. He wanted to stress the point, it's more than just a ball game. See, everything in our world, no matter what it is, it's all part of God's plan. When you get in your car and you say, well, I'm going to go get the car wash, you drive down the car wash, you drive home, you go into the grocery store, you pick up something, you say hello to something. Did you know God knew before the world began you were going to do that? Isn't that interesting? And he wants you to be available and ready and useful for his purpose. And don't, don't be like Pharaoh and say, I'm sick and tired of everything. I met a guy one time who was sick and tired. I said, what are you sick and tired of? He said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's easy to get that way in this world. I can't wait till Jesus comes. I, I just soon just leave it all behind. He's in control. He has a purpose. And in closing, I want to just ask a couple of questions. What's it going to take for you? If you're a sinner and you're here today and you've never been saved, what's it going to take? I mean, God's showing miraculous plagues to Pharaoh eight straight times and he still doesn't yield to God. What's it going to take for you? Maybe you say, I've been a member of this church or I've been going to church all my life. That's great, but it's never saved anyone. Well, I was baptized. That's never saved anyone. Years ago, I was knocking on doors, and I, of course, I've had so many answers. Someone knocked, I knocked on the door, and they, I said, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, my, my grandmother maybe uh, raised me in church. I said, well, are you a, tell me about your Christianity. Well, my grandmother raised me in church. I'm like, that's not what I want to hear. Or, or I prayed a prayer. Someone prayed a prayer, and I prayed that prayer with them. Well, tell me about that prayer. Well, I don't remember what I prayed. Are you going to church? No, I'm not going now, but my mother did bring me to Sunday school when I was little. I, I, so, so what do you do? One, one girl worked at a club. I work at a club. I'm a pole dancer, one girl said. I need to get out of this area. And I'm like, a girl's telling me that she's a Christian, but now she's a pole dancer. But grandma raised me in church. Listen, let us get it with God. A born again experience is regeneration. And the Holy Spirit moves in. Your life takes up residence. And if you're not living right, he'll make you miserable. God is real. And when you repent of your sin and really trust him, he'll make a change in your life. Playing the part. That's actually the Greek word hypocrite is is the word for someone who says you're a Christian and looks great on Sunday and attend church, carry even a Bible, maybe wear a tie and all that. That doesn't save anyone. It's a good act. But God knows your heart. He knows your goals and ambitions in life. 
And if they're not to please him, you better do a checkup on that experience of going to church with grandma. I'm glad grandmas bring their kids to church and I'm glad mothers do. Don't get me wrong, but that's never saved anyone. Then I want to ask Christians that are here, and, and I don't use the word backsliders a lot. It's a biblical word. But how long can you stay backslidden? If you're really truly a child of God, the Bible said he'll not allow you to continue to live in sin. Something's wrong when you stay backslidden for years and you just say, well, I had an experience and I'm saved, but I, you know, I do need to change, but I'm not ready yet. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. I hear that as well. Yeah, I, I haven't been to church in, uh, one guy said, 20, 20 years, I guess, since I've been to church. Oh, I'm a Christian. Another guy said, I, I have my own church. A couple of buddies and I have church. That's not church. Churches have pastors and deacons. Right? Church, churches do a lot of things, the Bible says. That's not church. We, I have a lot of play church, a, a lot of religion, but not true religion going on in our world. You know, and I don't know why the last few weeks I've been harping on this, but I want you to examine your heart to make sure you know God. And if you don't, we'd love to help you meet God. But if you're just playing the part and you're not really sincere about it, you need to get right with God today. Listen, God, God doesn't like play acting. You know, he, he makes it very clear in his word. He doesn't like lukewarmness. He says, I'd just soon vomit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. That's what the word spew means, to vomit. We make God sick when we pretend. We need to be real. And sometimes being real means to admit your failures. The Bible says confess your faults one to another. Have a prayer partner. Have some accountability. Have something. But get right with God before the Lord comes and you're left behind. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I guess we're, we have a lot of folks, I know we have a lot of folks in spiritual darkness today, and we'll talk about that next week. But God, I just pray for everyone here to examine their heart and not to depend on a prayer they prayed, but depend on you and you changing their life because they've repented, called on you, and turned their lives over to you, and you've taken over a real born-again experience. Lord, and I just pray if there's anyone here who's not saved, they'll come forward today and be saved. If there's anyone here who's just playing the part and they haven't been living for you, that they'll come. I don't know hearts, God, but you do. Our church doors are always open if someone needs to join. But Lord, help us to do business with God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.